Hi, my name is Cecilia Puna, and welcome to this episode of Brave New Women. All around the world, there are amazing, ordinary women doing extraordinary things. Brave New Women is about giving those women a platform and a voice, and it's about changing the way that women are perceived. And it's a way of inspiring all of us to do the things that we've always wanted to do. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to be sitting down to speak to Hannan Nayel. Hannan has just retired from her position as General Secretary for Northeast Africa for Danone. And for those who don't know, Danone is a French company which is best known for its yogurt. Hannan's career has not been anything close to linear. She has done all sorts of things in her life. And she has lived in many countries, including Egypt, the US, the Netherlands, and Saudi Arabia. And Hannan's story is a great reminder that we can do anything if we set our mind to it. So, Hannan, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Hannan, could you just give us a little bit of your, um, your background, your childhood, where you grew up, what you studied, just to give us some context? Okay. Um, I was born in Egypt, but uh, one month after uh, I was born, I moved with my family to Austria. My father was a diplomat, so we ended up moving every few years to different countries, always coming back to Egypt um, in the middle. And uh, that really served to keep me grounded in my Egyptian culture, even though I added to it uh, by having this international mindset, which made it much easier for me later on to understand different uh, the different ways people think and to have empathy for them and to understand that you can look at the same issue from different perspectives. So uh, we ended up in uh, Austria, uh, Germany, Holland, uh, Tunisia. Uh, that's where I lived with them. Uh, and um, obviously I visited them. Now I met my husband um, when I was studying in the States. I did my bachelor's degree. I had it in, in Egypt at the American University in Cairo in mass communication, in journalism. And um, I really wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. So that led me to go to the States to do my master's degree at AU in Washington, D.C., where they have a very uh, strong film program. And I got my master's in, uh, in film and video. And that was the plan uh, to be a documentary filmmaker. But then uh, I think as many people know, life can take you on different journeys. Um, I met my husband, who's, uh, who is Lebanese in, uh, at university in the library, no less. And um, <laughs> uh, we married uh, a year and a half later. Um, and then we moved to, um, to Holland, to the Netherlands, uh, where he had just uh, gotten a job. And we moved, first we lived in The Hague, and then we moved to the south of, uh, of the Netherlands, in, in, outside a city near uh, Eindhoven, a small village, actually. We lived in a small village, which was a first for me. And I had my two children. And that's when my career kind of took, um, paused for a while, uh, uh, for several reasons, because I really wanted, I chose to stay at home. I chose to do that. That was a very conscious decision, which I think a lot of women don't need to feel guilty about. Same as the women who choose to go back to work. Also, they should not feel guilty. It's what everyone really uh, needs to do for themselves. But also another reason was that um, I had moved to Holland, I didn't know the language, and to work in the communication field and to do documentaries, you really do need to know the language very well. So I did, I studied the language, I learned it, I studied it, um, uh, and then I spoke it fluently. 
Um, and then uh, when my youngest was almost ready to go to school, um, we moved to, um, I accepted a job in Hilversum with uh, AT&T. Back then when it was a huge telecommunications company with different um, branches all over the world and at the headquarters in Europe, from Europe and Middle East and Africa. Um, and, uh, and then that's, and then I, that's where, that's when I restarted my career. It stalled again because I was kind of following my husband at that point, uh, moving to different countries, moved to Morocco and then Saudi Arabia. And every time I would pick up and, and follow up with my career, uh, in different ways, <laughs> in different, just going, ways. just going back, back a little bit. Um, what was it that wanted you, that, that made you want to be a, a filmmaker, documentary filmmaker? Um, because, um, I really knew what the power of the word was when I studied journalism. I knew that, um, journalists really have the power to change people's minds and influence them. Yet I saw that many writers or journalists did not do it in a very ethical way. And I, and I, I really wanted to be able to present different ideas and uh, different viewpoints. Um, uh, especially when I saw coverage of the Middle East. Or Egypt, I thought it was very um, one-sided, very biased, uh, did not uh, sometimes stated some facts, but completely out of context. So I saw that as a responsibility. And then um, I, I thought, okay, it's not just the written word, it's also the image that goes with the written world. It's just like you judge people from the first time they look, you know, that's not completely correct. But I mean, even when you look at documentaries or, or films or news on the news, when you see a video, you you can also be very selective in what you show. You can also focus the camera on only one part of the big picture. So I thought to couple the written word with the image, that's very powerful. And really, that's really what I've taken with me um, always throughout my career, because I did move to corporate communications afterwards. I worked briefly. Uh, with the film industry, just simply because I was not in different countries, in the right country at the right time to do that. But I did cho choose to go into corporate communications and, and really, um, where the written word and the image, and this is really how you create an impression. So you create an impression, a positive impression of the companies you work for. You present the issues in a positive light and respond to others also. Um, respond to public's questions about uh, certain activities or, or issues that the company is involved in. Um, so I really use that. I, I, I still think that way when I, sometimes when I think about different topics, I, I can literally see an image, not just the word. I can imagine the image. Mm. Yeah. And when you were, when you were in, um, in the Netherlands and you made the decision not to work, uh, for a few years. How, how was that experience for you? Um, at that time in the Netherlands, when I lived there, I think this was around when I had my first child, it was, um, oops, he's going to kill me, 1986. <laughs> 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 and back then it was very difficult to, to go back to work and, and find uh, where I lived. They didn't really have daycare. Daycare was twice a week for a few hours, just a uh, play school for children. And to really put them in a, in a daycare that was just not, um, it was not done there. I lived in the South. It was not done there and I didn't feel comfortable. Um, maybe then because the, um, daycares were different also then. It was just different. And I'm really glad that women have such a bigger, 
much bigger choice now to to really have uh, options when they have children. Um, they didn't have remote working then. They, they didn't have any of that stuff. So um, when I stayed home, I was terrified about going back to work. I was terrified. And um, I remember that even my interview, when I went to interview AT&T, I come from Egypt. So in Egypt, you know, we wear jewelry, we wear rings, we wear, you know, um, we like to dress up. So it is different in Holland. People are more understated in Europe generally. And I remember going to my uh, to my interview. I took off all my rings except my wedding ring. I made sure I didn't wave my hands about, you know, because, you know, we're very emotional. <laughs> we speak with our hands. So I learned to tone that down because I knew how that was seen, how that was viewed. I, the whole interview, I was staring my interview straight in the eye, very uncomfortable also because, <laughs> but it was because I knew you needed to look them in the eye. And these are cues, things that you learn when you live abroad, how different cultures view um, some uh, mannerisms or, or ways of acting. I mean, if someone stared at me like that, I think in Egypt, some are the Arab countries, they would think, my God, she's weird. She's like, she didn't, she was like staring at me <laughs> the whole time. So it's viewed differently. Anyway, so, Going back to work, I was terrified. I was terrified. I thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm just, um, I'm going to fail. And I felt very insecure having been home for a few years. And, um, and I went back to work. And when I went to the office, very modern office in, in Hilversum in the Netherlands, and they gave me a computer, desktop computer. And I was like, okay, the only computer that I knew was when I was at university in the States and we'd sit in a room. We all had monitors in front of us and we used those commands, dot, whatever. And then we go to the very ancient. <laughs> and then we went, when we sent the order to print, we would go to, to the, to the, where we, you know, to a the print room, print room and get these sheets of paper with holes on the side, you know, striped green. And, <laughs> and that was the last thing that I knew you know, a few years before. And there I go, go back to the office and there's this desktop computer and I had to learn. You know, of course I knew word processing. Philips was so modern then. I had a word processing thing, you know, a typewriter dot two kind of thing. And um, so I remember I was, I was pretty embarrassed because everyone else around me knew how to use it. And I remember my friend then, Robin, he was like my uh, partner in crime. He was so nice. Someone in IT and he really... Um, he would come and I tell him, I have no idea how to do this. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> but anyway, but you settle in. And so I think this is something that a lot of women uh, need to realize that um, if they do decide to stay home for a few years, when they come back, the working world can look quite different. For me, of course, it was a radical change. But the insecurity that comes with it and the feelings of self-doubt um, are normal. You just have to get over them and um, you learn to get over them. And, 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 and if you believe in that, you can really, uh, you would do, you will do well. It's okay. You know? Mm -hmm. And so that was one thing that when I meet women who decide to stay at home or are confused, I say, that's okay. But, and don't be afraid of the feelings that you get. I mean, even women who haven't stayed at home feel guilty about leaving the children. And God knows I felt guilty also when I, when I worked and, and uh, I would feel guilty about my children. But that's something you learn to live with and you give quality time to your children. You learn how to do it your way. Mm. 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 
And then when you 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 then left Amsterdam, went to Morocco, and then to um, Saudi Arabia. And tell me about your time in Saudi Arabia. Um, Saudi Arabia. I think I I think at that time I. I almost went kicking and screaming because I didn't know too much about it. There you go. So you don't know what it's like. You don't know what kind of a country it is. And I was thinking, my God, I'll go there and um, I'll have to wear the abaya and I'll have to cover my hair and do all this. And, and I'm not sure how I'm going to uh, to deal with it. But actually, there's some of the best years of my life were in Saudi Arabia. I made, I had a great time. Uh, Saudi Arabians uh, that I met were incredibly kind and, and sweet. When I made some of the best friends that I I have to this day in Saudi Arabia, and uh, just the quality of life obviously was was good. Um, and uh, so I think this is a lesson in not making judgments. Every country is different. Every country is different, mm-hmm. and um, you and learn what- to mo- modify and adapt yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, what what were you doing as a job in in um, Saudi Arabia? Well, before that, let me just backtrack because when I was in when I was at AT and T, and we um, we moved to um, uh, to Morocco, I didn't work in Morocco for like eight months, and then we moved to Saudi Arabia. And in Saudi Arabia, I did all sorts of jobs, but I did work for one of company. I cannot say the name because then I was working for the company, kind of. Um, let's say, under the radar, <laughs> mm. which was the way that it was done there. And um, uh, I worked there for, uh, I think, four or five years, and I did basically everything. So I just learned to adapt. It, and someone with a good head on their shoulders uh, wrote white papers, did research, did, I don't know, everything you could think of. Uh, you know, could you do this one? Yes, I can. And then um, a friend of mine who is uh, quite a well-known director went to um, was filming in Saudi Arabia a, a movie, uh, a documentary, and she called me and said, "Would you like to um, to work with me on it?" And I thought that's fantastic, you know. Uh, wow, my dream, you know, working on documentaries. I was helping in in production, uh, making checking the sites where we would go, uh, checking, you know. Um, who would meet, etc. Preparing those things. It was incredible fun. I went with them while they were filming. Uh, very exciting. So when they finished, I think they stayed for two weeks and left. And uh, and then I was like, okay, I miss this. I miss this excitement. I miss filming. I, I it's just something that I want to do. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do something about it. So what I did was I thought, okay, I'm going to write down three proposals for a program. And I will go to Channel 2, the English channel in Saudi Arabia. Um, to Television channel. Television channel. Um, I'll propose those ideas to them and see maybe they'd be interested. First, I thought maybe I can present it, I can produce it. I'm open. So I wrote down three ideas. I think one was for a talk show, one was for a cooking show, uh, which included men and women, which was a first in Saudi Arabia. Um, back then, there were no men and women were not together in the same program and certainly there was no cooking show where you had male and female contestants so i went to the um to the head of the saudi uh, uh, tv and um i pitched the ideas to her and she liked the idea of the cooking show she thought that well you know that's interesting um i would be interested in that and uh, she said um, but we don't have a kitchen and i said i'll get you a kitchen 
you know, I don't know why I said that, but I, you know, go get it. And I said, I'll get you a kitchen. Yeah, but we don't have a budget. So we didn't have prizes. I'll make, I'll have the prizes covered. Don't worry about that. And the contestants, I, I said, I'll have a contestant from seven, from eight different countries, uh, or nine different countries. Um, and, um, and, um, that way you'll be able to, they'll be tuning in and watching all those different countries will be tuning in and that will increase the viewership. Da, 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 da. And she said, okay, go ahead. You know, um, can you do it? like that. Come back to me when you have that organized. I ran off and I was like, got my contestants. I had uh, the wife of the French consul and I had a teacher, the Canadian teacher, a man who's the only man on the show. Um, uh, he was uh, one of the contestants. I had an Egyptian friend who had joined. I had a woman from Saudi Arabia, young woman, also first. And anyway, so I had from different countries, from India and so on in England. And then I went and around the different hospital, the hotels, and I thought, okay, where would I find kitchens? I'll go to a hotel, you know, maybe I can use their kitchens. And I went to different hotels, and, and the hotel that liked my idea was the Four Seasons in Riyadh. Um, and I was very excited. So uh, we agreed, they agreed, they shut down um, a restaurant, their Italian restaurant for three days. They had two like stations next to each other where they would uh, open stations. And they said, we'll shut down the restaurant for three days and just make sure you film your six episodes then. And I remember the food and beverage director of the Four Seasons was one of the, um, of the judges. Um, and then a famous Saudi Arabian female journalist and another Saudi Arabian, uh, uh, woman, um, who, uh, who worked for the, one of the UN offices there. So it was very diverse. And the audience included everyone who lived on my compound, <laughs> my children, <laughs> my husband, you know, and I asked them to invite their friends and it was really nice. They sat at the restaurant. So there was the live audience and we filmed it and, um, went back to the, uh, head of the TV. And I told her, you know, I have this and that, and I have, you know, the contestants and I have the place the four seasons. And I also have, um, uh, the three prizes, the first, second, and third, and the runner up. The first prize was, uh, uh, the four seasons day, uh, trip to the Maldives. And the second was a kitchen from a famous local supplier, etc., etc. She was like flabbergasted. She was like, you managed to do that. And she said, I don't, I didn't think you would be able to. Mm. and um and then uh that's it she she called the team there was a a film crew with a truck and we went and filmed it so it was it was fantastic so that gave me a thrill and i worked with a uh one of the saudi arabian directors uh, uh who worked for the channel too so it was a great experience and um um so I mean, it just goes to show you can do what you want if you really yeah. uh, put your head to it I mean, it, it strikes me that it must have taken incredible courage to go and see the head of of the the television station. You had you didn't have a kitchen, you didn't have a contestants, you just had an idea. You pitched the idea to the head of the, the television station. I mean, I just think that, and and I'm so, so happy now. Courage. And I think I mean, she agreed to see me, and you know, it's like um, it was great. Uh, it was great. So, uh, and I presented the program. I think the first. Uh, the first show or two, I think the director told me, Hanan, you need to take a breath between, you know, you have to present more slowly. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never done it before. Mm. And was and was it a success? 
it was a success and they um actually be- while before we were filming i think the four seasons was approached by the other cha- another channel saying you can do it at our studios we have a bigger audience etc but channel two s- stayed with me and mm-hmm. uh and it was a big success but i think then it was uh i think they showed two um shows and they had a write-up about it in uh in uh two of the papers in like arab news and then in another paper in in um in the UAE, and then there was a fuss. Then um, I think they had to stop it uh, because of uh, some concerns about having men and women, and we had to re-edit the tapes a little bit to be compliant. But um, but they I, the the year after, and they 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 showed it in its entirety. I know the director sent it to me. Told me you'll be happy to know that mm. the first edit we had was run again, but that was after I had left Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, it just, it's thrilling, I think, uh, when you put your head to something and you achieve it. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's such a, such a huge, um, huge thing to organize too. So many people to organize and, um, I mean, it, it must have taken just a lot of, a lot of fun. Uh, you know, everyone, all the contestants had to bring their own ingredients. I had, uh, everything written down, you know, I had the, the sheets. Everyone, uh, it was just incredible. It was uh, so much fun. But I was really looking forward to working in that field. But when I came back to Egypt, it was difficult to find a job then. I think uh, it's it's more difficult in certain fields when you're older. Um, um, and I uh, went back into corporate communications again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that became my career, uh, corporate communications, public affairs, etc. Um and that kind and of I think you, you were jumping around from different, different exactly at that stage, yeah. making up making up for the years that um, uh, that I missed that I had lost when I stayed at home. So I just moved from one to the other just uh, until I uh, until my last position, which was a really challenging. I set up um, a totally new uh, function, which included legal affairs, regulatory affairs, public affairs, communications. Um, uh, together and put down the systems for and and a whole compliance program for the company. So I was very proud of that. Very proud of that. Mm -hmm. And um, when did you start? When did you start feeling ambitious about having a career in corporate communications and about? I, I was always ambitious, but I think, uh, and this is something I think that a lot of women do, is that they always put obstacles. So I think hindsight, as they say, is always is twenty twenty. So um, times were different then; they're different now. There, it's easier for women. Although I still think they face the same issues. Um, we tend to put obstacles, or I tended to put some obstacles to myself, and some women that I I spoke to and gave advice to. Uh, also tended to put obstacles. Uh, what so, sort of obstacles are you thinking of? So when I was when I worked for AT and T in Holland, um, a few months in, I think uh, I was offered a job uh, as the uh, corporate spokesperson to work in corporate communications. I was market communications manager in one of the divisions, and they asked me to move to. Uh, they offered me this job, which was incredibly exciting, incredibly exciting, and I was like thrilled. I was, I was already been there for a few months, and I. You know, I've been offered this, and it was uh, was really exciting. Uh, but then they told me um, you need to move to the states uh, for a few months uh, for training 
to the AT&T headquarters. Um, and I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I had, uh, I had a six-year-old and a four-year-old and I was like, what am I going to do with my kids? Um, my husband was traveling a lot. He was in uh, marketing and sales and he was moving, he was traveling every 10 days or two weeks. And, um, when you're in a different country, you don't have your family around, you don't have the support system. And I already had my babysitters and babysitting arrangements, um, you know, it just figured out. And I thought, what am I going to do with my children? And I thought, I can't do this to my children. I'll have to turn it down. So I went back and told them, you know, I cannot accept it because um, I'll be traveling a lot and I, I have children. And I was, now when I think about it, when I thought about it a few years later, I was like, why didn't, why did I immediately think of why it cannot be done? Hmm. I should have thought, okay, I love this job. Um, I just have my two children and this is, we need to figure out, let's figure out a way to deal with this. And hmm. I could have, I could have suggested many things. They could have, you know, uh, maybe I could take my kids, maybe I could postpone it until the summer holidays and then make it a holiday and put them in camp or, you know, uh, have some of my relatives go. I could have thought of so many things. Yet, well, was, there, was there a discussion with your husband as well? That uh, maybe he yes. could travel a little bit less during that time that maybe he uh, could go to? He was the primary, uh, uh, let's say, breadwinner at that point so no there was not that discussion and that's also and my husband is quite open he was very proud of me very supportive but actually didn't cross our minds mm. <laughs> it didn't mm. it didn't cross our minds at all and i think mm. that's the difference between then and now um makes me sound so asian ancient i'm not that ancient but it was i mean there have been many steps since then that have been taken even so though some things still remain the same but anyway, so I so when I talk to to women now, young women, and they're dreading this decision and thinking, okay, I should take this job. How am I going to deal with this? You'll be able to deal with it. You can figure it out. I mean, I also figured it out when I was in 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 um, in uh, at AT and T. Also, um, I lost one of my the babysitters, um, and it really messed up my schedule. I didn't know what to do, and I went to my boss and I said, you know. Um, we agreed that I'd work 80%. So, and I had this very special arrangement. I mean, usually women who did that would just work one day less a, a week. And I thought, that's not going to help me. I need to pick my children up and take them to school myself. Then that way I don't need a, to count on a babysitter. So I'll come to work at 9.15 every day. I'll leave at 3. And on Wednesdays, I'll leave at 12. And that way I took my children to do different schools and left at 3. And I, and I did the same job. I just did it in a shorter space of time. Mm. And I remember that my colleagues, some of my colleagues thought it was very strange that I was coming in 45 minutes later than them and leaving at three. And, uh, you know, it's like it wasn't done that way. Everyone just took one day off if they were, you know, if you plan to work 80 percent, but with, with, with a little bit of flexibility um, and discussion, you can reach something that is good for you and good for your work. And I say that women whose work is very understanding and very supportive of them, I mean, they are so loyal. And mm. I would have done anything mm. uh, for them because um, I was able to take care of my children and work. And so it I, probably suited them better too because it meant that 
they had you there every day, even if every, it all day. You were there every day. Every day, every day. And I just left at three to pick up my children. And um, and Wednesday half days so that I could take my children on play dates and you know <laughs> Wednesday afternoon. So mm. it was it was it worked for me. Maybe it doesn't work for other women, but everyone can find the balance and be flexible and just open the discussion, not immediately uh, shut it down and, and put obstacles. So that's really one thing that I always make sure I tell others. Mm. Mm. And has your experience as, um, for example, in Egypt and, and in, in your latest, in your last um, position, mm-hmm. did you find that as a woman you were treated differently or that you managed differently as a woman? Did, did it have an impact? Um, I think there's always an impact. It's not just, it's just, um, it's much better than it is. Uh, nowadays, it's much better than it was before. And uh, obviously, um, there's um, a lot of education that 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 colleagues and companies put their employees through. So there's a, a marked difference now, especially for the younger women, especially for the younger women. I was the first woman on the executive committee in Egypt. And actually, Danon is one of the companies that really, I think, I, I really don't know what the figures are, but uh, I think more than 50% of their senior executives are women on the board. And if you look at the board, you'll see an incredibly high representation of women. So that was really important to Danon. Now, to go back again to the question of, did I see a difference? The difference is in the people themselves. I mean, uh, it's not in the company. It's uh, There's a lot of unconscious bias, which a lot of people might not be aware of. Um and um, I remember when I first, not a Danon, but when I first started to work, I remember, for example, if someone would bring in a birthday cake and uh, and then they'd look, I mean, we're all men and I'm the only woman or there, maybe there's another woman. And then immediately would, they would hand the knife to the woman. And it's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's unconscious. And how did you react? No, make a joke, you know, you make a joke. And at first I would be, you know, it's like maybe a bit more awkward, but I learned to make jokes just to let people know, you know, Hmm. Um, to let people know that they, uh, of this bias. And and actually when I was at uh, Novartis, um, when I worked for Novartis in Egypt, they had an incredible, fantastic um, diversity and inclusion program. And I was the champion then uh, for uh, for Novartis. And um, I remember uh, giving uh, some workshops on that and, uh, and talking to different people about it. And uh, some of the exercises that you do, you know, show this. And it was just really a lot of fun. I mean, I, I remember I used to tell them a story about unconscious bias. Uh, um, I never really understood it because even growing up, my grandmother was a working woman. Uh, she was a teacher, then a headmistress. Um, the percentage of women working in banks in, in the government was quite high. Um, it's still it's quite high now. But even then, there were a lot of women professors, etc., etc. Not like now, but still. And I remember that uh, we used to go to my grandmother's houses and she had a huge table where all her daughters and their husbands and children would sit. It's 
and uh, we'd go there once a week to have uh, to have lunch and she was a great cook and um i used to love chicken and um i used to love the breast of chicken so not the thigh and i have two brothers so i remember my grandmother who adored me and she um she would ask all the adults first what would you like to drink and she would help carve the chicken and the meat etc and then she would come to the children so she always asked my brothers first what would you like and then there would be one chicken left and the two breasts would be gone so my brothers would eat the breasts and i was like i used to feel why didn't she ask me first you know but when i grew up i knew that was the feeling of that was i didn't feel included i felt sad even though my grandmother loved me so i always gave that that um that example you know when i when i spoke about the feeling of inclusion because I, it's very hard also in arabic to find that to find the same uh translation for that word it's mm-hmm. uh, it's not a matter of being diverse it's like feeling part of the team and um in many many instances sometimes you're sitting in um in in a meeting and this is not to mention any company just generally speaking could be even a meeting with external suppliers or whatever if a woman speaks sometimes the uh, the men speak louder or uh, or a woman sometimes a woman says something and then the man starts explaining okay what she wants to say is and people are not they do it in well intended with good intentions Mm. they don't realize you know um and i'm just with the more you are aware of it the more you're attuned to it mm. and it teaches you to communicate also differently i mean men need to understand that women do communicate differently and women need to understand that they also might not be whatever they say might not be interpreted in the way that they want mm. so how did you change your communication style I changed it a little bit. I became a little bit more, you know, you have to be to the point more often. Um make it clear, for example, if I'm explaining a um uh an issue that I have that I'm not seeking advice, I'm just giving you the background. I already have it. I already have um 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 uh, let's say um I've decided on what I need to do. but i'm just giving you the background because sometimes you start off with a background as you need to do this no it's i'm just giving the background so i think we need to get to the point more often and i'm not saying it in a in, i'm talking about myself <laughs> mm. Mm. um but also i think the uh, it's very important for men also to to understand that it's okay to have a different management style i had a let's say a softer management style that doesn't make it wrong but sometimes when you're in a company that's very aggressive it would be seen as not the right style even though you achieve same or better results um it can be seen that you're too soft but it's not because some you know what's happening it's just your style is you reach it in a different way and i think there needs to be uh, that needs to be accepted more mm. i i think there's still a long way uh I think we're still a long way even though a lot of it's much better nowadays hmm. um but i also think we also have a role to play because a lot of women um are quick to say it's totally different uh things are different now we are all the same etc and we're just like uh, men and there should be no um uh differentiation etc yes that's true that's true but there's a certain point in many companies 
where you will still find that 90% or 70% of boards and executive committees are, are men. So what happens? There is a, that something happens along the way. So you start off equal. And then at that point, is it because we're less competent? I would argue, no, we're not less competent, but something happens. There's a fabulous book that's just come, come out by um, Jill Whitty Collins mm-hmm. called Why Men Win at Work. And um, she was the vice president of uh, Procter & Gamble. And for most of her, her career, she was working in, in teams where there are a lot of women. So she was surrounded by a lot of women. And so she wasn't really attuned to the to unconscious bias or mm-hmm. prejudice or anything. And then when she became vice president, she was suddenly surrounded by a lot of men. And it was like the scales fell from her eyes. And she said, ah, oh, now I understand. And she, she tells a story of um, being in a, a group of work, who are working on diversity and inclusion. And there's a man in the group who's very committed to the, to the, to the cause. And he has just decided to appoint a man over a woman. And she said to him, well, why did you do that? And he said, well, I weighed it all up. And the conclusion I came to was that the man was the best for the position. And she says, well, it just cannot be that in more than 50% of cases, the man just happens to be the best for the position. And I thought that was such a great demonstration of how unconscious bias works. And it's happening at the bottom level and then the next level up and the next level up. And so there's become less and less women because the man just happens to be the best fit. I'm not sure what the, I I know a lot of, um, a lot of people think that by appointing a woman, it, it means that you choose the less competent person because she's a woman, but that's not how it should be. It's if they're both equal, you choose the woman. If they're both equal, you choose the woman. Not less competent, but I know there's, I have an incredibly funny friend who, who works a lot in diversity and inclusion. And she said, so what's the problem of having one mediocre woman come through the ranks? We've had, you know, decades of mediocre men. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How come now it's, it's an issue? And, and I, uh, she made me laugh, you know, really, because it's, it's true. It's mm. true. It doesn't mean that all women, we're all super women, we're all great and we deserve to be there. There are many mediocre women and bad workers out there, many, but there must be something wrong if you have all those bright young women and they move up the ranks and then at a certain point, suddenly that number decreases. Something is wrong there. There was a study of um, of, um, in Australia about a year ago, there was a study of some of the the top companies and they asked them if they were thinking of appointing a woman CEO, and the risk that they, the the answer that they got from from all the companies was, we didn't want to take a risk because appointing a woman CEO was seen as as risky. Yeah, but you know there are also, I mean, we can't lay the blame all on on men also, no. um, because there are some women who do not want themselves to work for a, a woman boss mm. or to have a woman CEO or to go to a female doctor. There are women who, who perpetuate that. Mm. Um, and so that I think there's a lot that we can do as women to really support each other 
and to really speak well of each other to others. That is, this mm. is so important. This mm. is so important. I mean, really, are all women jealous of other women? <laughs> That's I hear. I hear this also a lot. It's like she was jealous of me. It's like, well, men get jealous too. They just don't show it. So, mm. You know, <laughs> mm. they react differently. They're also jealous of each other, but they do do it differently. So that's okay, you know. Um, so I think we also have a lot to learn. Mm. We also have a lot to learn. And um, Hannah, what has your been your experience as a woman in the various societies that you've lived in? Has that made a difference? Obviously, it's um, it's different in, in the many different cultures. What you are allowed to do as a woman or what is accepted is different. So as a working woman, I don't think there's there's an issue in Egypt. But then I'm talking about a specific class or people who live in the cities. Because that's also something that one hears. We, we have so many women. We have, I think we have seven or eight ministers female ministers, we have an incredible number of women who are on bank boards, who are the top bankers in this country, in finance, a lot of excellent professors in the multi, in, in marketing, a lot of women entrepreneurs. Yes. But if we're talking about society is much larger than that. So we all can, if we also talk about different, the uneducated classes or the lower classes, there's a lot of discrimination there. So we have it easy. So if we're talking about different uh, strata of society i i don't really feel much different as a working woman than a woman in in the western world i don't mm-hmm. uh but if we talk about uh, maybe some people come from very conservative backgrounds yes then there would be a difference mm-hmm. um it's changed a lot over the years it's changed a lot over the years how women are are perceived working um, I know when I lived in Holland, it was like, oh, you're working, you're sent your children. Who takes care of your children? You know, that was mm. a, like, it's not done, you know. Um, but now it's different. Now it's different mm. because there are other options and there's the flexible work option. And now there's remote working, you know, so many different combinations. I think it's, it is an exciting time for us. It's mm. very exciting. And if the woman chooses to stay at home, she can stay at home also. I mean, it's she's also working. That's women who stay at home. I mean, I can tell you, I stayed home for a few years. It's so much easier going out. I mean, oh yeah. <laughs> if you have a disagreement with a colleague or someone, they don't throw themselves on the ground and kick their feet. And <laughs> they don't do that, you know. <laughs> they do other things, but at least physically, you know, it's um, it is in some ways. I think it's it's. It's easier to work because someone else takes care of your children for a few hours. It's a bit like children going to school. I mean, keep, parents love having their kids, but when the summer holidays come, they love having their kids, but they're also very happy when they go back to school. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, agree, exactly. So, <laughs> I think it's the same with working uh, women. And uh, it's really uh, people need to be very understanding of what makes you tick and what makes you happy. Mm. Mm. Um, absolutely and with, with no prejudgment Helen mm. as we bring this to a close um, I wanted to ask you is there is there anything that we've missed or is there a message that you, you'd like to give to the people who are listening anything at all I think for women it's um, I think I've said it before that it doesn't matter what you choose but 
do what you think is right for you. And I think, and don't be, a, don't always put obstacles. If you're working, don't put obstacles to as why it would not work. You need to be more open. Um, and also the companies now are making such big strides now, really working consciously um to uh to to min to minimize this gender gap etc and all the companies that i've worked in have took you know incredible strides to uh to do that so i think it's um it depends on on the companies also to instill that culture because that culture was there in all the companies i worked in i mean and uh i really um that the two companies that really have those programs or strong programs, Danone and, and Novartis, and they were schools. Novartis was incredible also. Just opened my eyes up to to what you can achieve and, and how you can achieve it as a woman. And and, and uh, so that's really what I, I would like women to uh, to take away is that the world is open out there. Just don't be afraid. And... Um, you can do it maybe in different ways but you can still do it you can achieve mm. what you want mm. and Helen what does the future hold for you um I think uh, right now I'm just enjoying my uh, my uh, my free time and taking this time to uh, relax work on my health because I think I did put that back on the back burner exercise and taking care of myself uh, that's what I'm focusing on now but also I have this long bucket list and, um, and right now I'm open to consulting, uh, opportunities. I'd like to, to, um, to really, uh, uh, do more in the diversity and inclusion field. So I'm looking at ways that I can do that. But up until I've put myself a timeline up until February next year, I will see, I will just relax and then I will look seriously into what I, I want to do. I need more time, flexibility. I don't want to be at a job at a desk from nine to to five. Well, it was never nine to five in the last jobs. Nine to nine to nine to ten p.m. <laughs> um, but I want to do something uh, that is useful for people, and I'd like to mentor mentor other women or young men. Hmm. Um, hmm. That's you know to to do something like it to give back to the community also. Hmm. Hmm. Well, thanks, Helen. I mean, you've had a you've had a, an amazing career, which has gone in all sorts of different directions and all sorts of different places, and um, so much wisdom for for the women who are listening. And I hope that that young women who listen really understand just that there are options not to be not to be closed, not to not to say that it can't be done because there is always a way to make it be done. So, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Brave New Women. Certain podcast sites such as Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts or Podchaser let you leave a rating and a review. The more ratings and reviews we get, the more people will listen and the more these women's stories will be shared. So I'd really appreciate it if you could. Thanks for listening.